Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 and 31 through 35. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should, not, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I, would, would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, one of my favorite... Um, Novels is one by Thornton Wilder, probably most famous for writing the play Our Town. Uh, but it's published in the late 1920s, and it's very short, less than 100 pages, called The, Bli the Bridge of San Luis Rey. And here's how it opens. On Friday noon, July the 20th, 1714, the finest bridge in all Peru broke and precipitated five travelers in the gulf below. The bridge was on the high road between Lima and Cuzco, and hundreds of persons passed over it every day. It had been woven of osier by the Incas more than a century before, and visitors to the city were always let out to see it. It was a mere ladder of thin slats swung out over the gorge with handrails of dried vine. The bridge seemed to be among the things that last forever. It was unthinkable that it should break. Wilder then goes on to say in, you know, that in the world of the novel, it was the collapse of this bridge that led to an unusual degree of, of introspection amongst the citizenry of Lima, that, that, that people were driven to search their, their, their consciences, to, to vow um, that they were going to get right with people they had wronged and, and to get right with God as well. And he notes that this is surprising given the fact that, that the people in Peru in, in 1714 were no strangers to uh, natural disasters and shipwrecks and, and death stalking them at every turn. But there was something about this particular tragedy that made it different. Now, the conceit of, of the novel um, is that there just so happened to be a Franciscan friar named Brother Juniper who was in the valley below who witnessed this, this accident. 
And Brother Juniper set out to do what he understood to be a scientific examination of the accident to answer the question, why did this happen to these five people? Because, and here's um, probably the great line from the entire novel, because if there were any plan in the universe at all, if there were any pattern in a human life, surely it could be discovered mysteriously latent in those lives so suddenly cut off. Either we live by accident and die by accident, or we live by plan and die by plan. And so most of the rest of the novel is taken up recounting the lives of those five poor souls before returning at the end to Brother Juniper's report and his own surprising end. But no spoilers here. So Brother Juniper was driven by this tragedy to, to ask the same questions that we ask when we face tragedy. And it's not just, why did this happen? But it's, why did this happen to them? And that's the same question that's faced, or, or rather we could say the, the same question that, that is asked by Jesus in our passage this morning. This passage, it's unique to Luke's gospel. And I think that's the reason that, that the, the good folks over at Luther Seminary who came up with the narrative lectionary, which is the series of readings that, that we've been following for the past few years that takes us from the fall uh, to, to the summer. Um, and so each year you go through the Old Testament, some of the, the, the great stories there, um, and then into one of the gospels. Uh, and, and this year we're going through Luke. And, you know, they have to pick readings. And this one is exclusive and particular to Luke's gospel. So this morning, we're going to look at this why question. We're going to look at, at how Jesus rejects the most common wrong answers to the why question. We're going to look at what he offers instead as, as the correct answer to the why question. And then lastly, how Jesus himself is an answer to that question. So first, let's get to the wrong answers to the question. News is brought to Jesus of an atrocity that's been committed by Pontius Pilate involving some Galileans who were offering sacrifices in the temple when they were killed. Now, remember that Jesus himself is a Galilean, and he is traveling as part of a group of Galilean pilgrims to go to the temple to celebrate the Passover, where they are going to offer sacrifices themselves. And so when we understand that, we can understand some of the ominous undertones that accompany this news. Now, we have no idea about the, 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 the particulars of this incident, but knowing what we know about Pilate and about his, his casual cruelty and, and his disregard for uh, Jewish sensibilities and, and customs when it conflicts with his own interests, and knowing what we know about the reputation that Galileans had as um, nationalists and, and separatists and even revolutionaries, then, then, it, then it stands to reason that, that what Pilate did was he had seen these men as part of a separatist movement, um, seeking to establish in some way an independent Jewish kingdom. And so he caught them at a moment when they were most vulnerable. Now, Jesus' response to the news of this tragedy is fraught with peril for him. Because on the one hand, he can either condemn Pilate and thus identify himself with the revolutionary and separatist party uh, in, in Judaism at this time, or he can condemn those revolutionaries as, in his own words, worse sinners than all the rest, and thus side with the Romans against his people. 
But as he has wanted to do, Jesus rejects this, this framing of the situation, and, and, he, and he puts his own framing on what's happening in, in that moment, what was happening. And so Jesus answers this, this situation, this dilemma with a, with a question. He says, do you suppose that because they were victims of this atrocity, do you suppose that because this happened to them, that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, so that they had it coming to them, that somehow they deserved it? And his answer is an unequivocal no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus introduces his own example to make a similar point. What about the tower that collapsed, killing 18 people near, near the pool of Siloam, kind of like the, the, the bridge of San Luis Rey? Were the victims of that tragedy, those 18, were they worse offenders than all the other people living in Jerusalem at that time? Now, again, we don't know any particulars about this incident. We wouldn't know about it if Jesus hadn't talked about it here and, and Luke hadn't put it in his gospel. But some scholars have speculated, this is pure speculation, but it's interesting, that this could have been associated with a, another historical incident involving Pontius Pilate who, 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 who built an aqueduct into Jerusalem. The Romans were nothing if, if great builders. Um, and so uh, they had built an aqueduct into Jerusalem, but, but the way that Pilate paid for this great public work is he had gone into the temple treasury and taken funds from there to pay for it. This was an absolute outrage, a scandal. And so knowing that, you know, we could say maybe that, 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 that people thought that these folks who died, they were complicit in a building project that was part of this national scandal. And so part of the answer to the why, question, why them question was, well, because they had it coming. Again, Jesus' response as to whether these folks were, were worse sinners, worse offenders than everyone else is an unequivocal no. So we have here an example of Jesus using a, a man-made, a human-precipitated evil and, and, a, and, a, and a natural evil, uh, uh, an accident and an atrocity to make the same point and to show us how our, our two most common and conventional answers to the why question that surrounds these incidences are wrong. Now, the first most common and most natural response when a tragedy happens is to look for a moralistic explanation. And we see Jesus explicitly condemning that in this passage. To find out how, you know, somehow why the people who suffer or had, have bad things happen to them, they have it coming for one reason or another. Because of some sin they committed, some moral defect or something in their character. And th this is the kind of answer that in the bridge of San Luis Rey, Brother Juniper is looking for. It's famously what, what Job's friends try to offer him when he loses everything. This is the notion of, of, of karma, rich, writ large, a universe that's filled with just desserts. Now, most of us instinctively recoil from such explanations the closer we get to the tragedy itself. You know, unless the victims are some kind of obvious reprobate, we, 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 we don't want to go there. But I will say, the further we get away, the more comfortable we are making these kind of connections and assertions. And, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen this play out during this past year over the course of the pandemic. There's this sense that somehow, especially since everything in our country divides along political axes, that at the beginning of the pandemic, well, this is a blue state problem. 
This is states that are densely populated and have public transportation and, you know, big government that's bloated and inept and corrupt. And so, yeah, they kind of deserve it. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a blue state problem, not a red state problem. We're spread out. We, you know, have our freedom. That was kind of the framing at the beginning. It's a blue state problem. And then later on, that's a red state problem. People in Georgia and, 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 and people in, in Florida, you know, the, the, the governments that are running there, they, 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 don't take, they don't believe the science. They don't follow it. And so they're basically just, you know, it's a, it's a killing machine and they have blood on their hands. And who can forget those pictures from Florida beaches with the, the telephoto lens that made it look like people who were several feet apart were right on top of each other. And the amount of public shaming that went into it. And kind of this, you know, deep sense that if you lived in a state that was run by the wrong party, you sort of had it coming. Kind of sickly rooting for bad things to happen because you think they deserve it. That human tendency we see here in our passage, it is alive and well today. But Jesus' answer to such simplistic, moralistic thinking, the, the theology behind it is no unequivocally. But Jesus also rejects what we might see as the more kind of sophisticated answer in a, in a weird context like our own. And when I talk about weird, that's an acronym. Western, educated, uh, industrialized, rich, and democratic countries like our own, you know, have not existed um, on, on this earth for very long. But we have our own framework when we look at uh, accents like this. And so we're more apt to say, along with the cynic and the skeptic of each and every age, that such tragedies mean nothing. They're pure chance, blind fate, happenstance, bad luck. And so in a universe without a God, then the the why questions are rendered meaningless. Why did this happen? Well, the only recourse for explanations we have are materialistic. So we, you know, have to look at biology and chemistry and physics. Beyond that, in terms of a, a moral meaning, an existential meaning, there isn't one. Why? Why did this happen? Why to them? Stuff happens, says the cynic with a shrug. But Jesus, in his response to what happens, he rejects both moralism and skepticism. Because his no doesn't just stop at no. No. It also includes a, a sense of meaning within the tragic. So he says, do you suppose they were worse sinners? No. Rejects moralism. But unless you all likewise repent, you will perish. Rejecting skepticism. So tragedies aren't meaningless, even if we can't understand the reason why they happen to certain people. The certainty for Jesus is that each and every one of us is going to face a circumstance like these unfortunate souls. So the question then becomes not why did it happen to those people, but given that eventually I too am going to die, what am I doing to prepare for when what happened to them happens to me? And the way Jesus frames it isn't in the way you sometimes get it, which hear, hear it said, which kind of you know, if you grew up in the church at all, you can sometimes make fun of, you know, the framing of something. If you died tonight, where would you go? This isn't what Jesus is doing here. It's not what he's doing at all. But he's getting people to think about the meaning that they can find within a circumstance. Are we living in such a way that when we're ready, when the tower falls on us? So this leads us from the the wrong answer to the why question. The wrong answers are, you know, uh, moralistic. They deserved it. 
And the wrong answer is also cynicism or skepticism doesn't mean anything. So the correct answer to the why question, it's found in, in one word in Jesus' answer, but then also in his parable about the, the fig tree. And the, the one word correct response for us in the midst of a man-made uh, you know, tragedy or a, or, a, or a natural disaster is this word that Jesus says, repent. Now, what we get from Jesus when he, when, he, when he tells us the correct answer to the why question, it's not a theodicy, which is a word, you know, that means in philosophy to try to explain how, you know, a universe, why does evil exist in, in a universe that is the product of the creation of an all-good and all-powerful and all-knowing God? We don't get a theodicy from Jesus. We're not told why evil exists. We're not told why bad things happen. And so while we aren't given a reason, we are given their meaning. So that makes sense, that distinction. We're not given a reason. We're not given a big abstract principle that we can understand why these types of things happen in the world. But Jesus does show us how to find their meaning. Because the answer to the why, it's not an abstract philosophical explanation. It's this intensely existential and, 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 and personal thing. We are to see that we will someday face death, and along with death, we will face judgment. And so the proper response to tragedy is not to gloat about our moral superiority or, or bask in our good fortune or to give in to despair. Jesus tells us that our why in the face of tragedy is to repent, to seize the opportunity, to not be like a fig tree, the fig tree. Now, the problem with the fig tree is that it's not producing any figs. It's using up a, a valuable space, precious resources in the soil without doing the thing it was created to do. That's the picture of true repentance that Jesus offers. Repentance is about fruitfulness. Now, for us, we have the sense that when we hear someone saying repent, it means feel bad about the things that you're doing and make some kind of vow or pledge to change your life. And, and biblical repentance, well, it might start there. It never stops there. Repentance is, is about so much more than just feeling bad. In fact, feeling bad is, you know, a poor substitute for fruitfulness. It's no substitute for fruitfulness. Show, don't tell. And in Greek, the word for repentance is about changing your mind. Literally, a complete shift in your mindset. A total change in the, in the way you think and look at the world. And, and the Hebrew word behind, you know, behind the Greek word, and, and Jesus is speaking, he's also thinking the Hebrew word, which is this word that means change direction, turn around. Wherever you've been going, don't go there anymore. Find a new destination, find a new direction, and walk in that way. And so when Jesus is talking about repentance, he's saying, shift your mindset, your worldview, your way of thinking. And also change the direction that you're walking, the way that you're living. That's the kind of repentance that Jesus is talking about, that total life change. In his uh, 95 Theses, Martin Luther, he starts with the very claim, number of Theses, number one, and, and, and everything else follows from, follows from this. He says the whole of Christian life, the entirety of Christian life can be captured in this one word, Repentance. And when we understand the, the holistic uh, conception of repentance that's presented by Jesus here, I think Luther was right. The Christian life is all about turning away from, from, from false ideology and, and false gods and false idols and following 
after Jesus, dedicating our life to doing that, of seeking his will, of obeying his word, of living for his kingdom. And so our response to tragedy for Jesus, it's, it's, it's to live lives of gratitude for God's mercy and God's patience in providing us the opportunity to change our direction so that we will be prepared to meet him when, when in the words of the creed, he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. And we see even in this parable that, that a, a delightful little detail is that the, the tree is provided with fertilizer. So not only is this soil a natural place where a tree can, can grow, and it's in the midst of a vineyard, we're told, so obviously the soil has nutrients enough to naturally help this tree do what it's going to do. But, but, but says, Jesus says, no, 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 the vine dresser, the, the, the person who's keeping this, tending to this tree, is going to put fertilizer on there as well, manure. And so as Christians, we should be so grateful for the helps that God has provided us towards fruitfulness. We're not out here on our own. We've got scripture. We've got the sacraments. We've got prayer. We've got fellowship. We've got friendship. We've got worship. We've got good teaching. The manifold gifts of the Spirit that are present within our community. We have an embarrassment of riches and resources at our fingertips and our disposal more than any other group of people in history. We have everything that we need to do this so that we can be fruitful in our walk with him. But the time to avail ourselves of those resources, the time to repent, the time to get serious about our walk with the Lord is now. And so our why in the face of tragedy is so that we can become more faithful disciples of Jesus and more fruitful servants of Christ. Not so that we can separate ourselves from the victim of circumstance and go, well, it stinks to be you. But so instead, we can care for them in Jesus' name with compassion and love. And so Jesus' response to tragedy is to tell us, don't look for the faults in the other people, but instead look at our own lack of fruitfulness. And don't go around, you know, looking for specks in other people's eyes. Look, look for those planks in your own that are blinding you to what God is doing around you. And lastly, here's how Jesus himself is an answer to the why question. And that brings us to the the last verses of our passage. Now, uh, at the end of the passage, Jesus makes clear, you know, he's going to Jerusalem. He has a very clear sense of purpose in mind. You know, Herod, the fox, he's not going to be able to do anything to Jesus. And and, and Jerusalem is outside of Herod uh, Herod Antipas' territory. Once Jesus gets into the region of, of Judea around Jerusalem, Herod can't touch him. And so Jesus understands, listen, though Herod might want to stop me, though he might want to do something to me, he can't. I cannot die outside of Jerusalem because that's where a prophet dies. So he understands, Jesus understands where he's going and what he's going to do. He's going to die. He's going to fall into the hands of sinners. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested, brutalized, killed by them. His blood is not going to be mixed with the sacrifices that take place in the temple. His blood itself will be the sacrifice. And there's no tower that's going to, you know, tragically collapse on him and and crush him under its weight. Jesus' death, he understands, is not going to be an accident like that. He's going intentionally, voluntarily to the cross, knowing that the full weight of human sin and all the evil of the world will come crashing down on him. And why he is doing that, what he thinks this is going to accomplish, it's, it's captured in, in that saying from Jesus' uh, in this passage that, that Matt referenced in his prayer, and it's this, it's where Jesus says, how often, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often 
when I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. It's an image taken from common life. That in the face of grave danger, uh, sometimes a, a hen, if there's a, a threat or if there's a fire, a hen will gather her chicks together under her wings to, 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 to spare their lives, giving her lives to protect and save theirs. So that's at least part of Jesus' own atonement theology, his own understanding of how does the cross work? Why did he do this? It's that on the cross, Jesus sees himself as ultimately protecting us from the looming and teetering tower that threatens us all, that's above us all, and that when we are under his wings, he will save us from its force and will not let us be crushed or destroyed by it. And so what then is repentance in this image but simply running under the wings of Jesus? Knowing that while we are deserving of the fate he suffers, we are so loved and treasured that he will not let us undergo it. That is a love that will not let us go. And so when we see what a loving and wonderful Savior we have, the real why question becomes not then, well, you know, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? The, the, The why questions shift and they change. Why have I not repented Why have I not fled to Jesus and gone under his wings? Why have I not borne fruit in my life that's worthy of repentance? Why have I waited? Why have I been making excuses? Why have I treated all the gifts of of life and of faith and of hope and of love? Why have I treated them with such, such casual and callous indifference? Why have I just been asking why and not started following him? And so I close with these words from near the end of Wilder's novel, and they are this. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge between them is love, the only survival, the only meaning, which I would alter to this. There is a land of the living and a land of the dead, and the bridge is Jesus, the only survival, the only meaning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.